Let me add my welcome to that of Callum's. As we approach the word of God, let's pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, as we hear from your word, Lord, give us ears and hearts that are ready to receive it. Lord, challenge, convict, and encourage us through it and reveal Christ in it to us this evening. Would it all be for your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, the year was 2015. And the event is the Rugby World Cup final. Arch rivals Australia are set to play New Zealand. And this guy, that's Michael Hooper. He's an outspoken, confident, multi-millionaire tipped to be the future captain of the Wallabies. He's got the world at his feet. And yet in our picture, he's just finished bawling his eyes out, having lost the biggest game of his life. All his possession and his performance weren't enough, and he's gone home empty-handed. This is Charlie Lyne, the wee guy. He's 14 in this picture. He's got nothing to offer the rugby world. He's just a scrawny wee kid. And yet, this is him with a Rugby World Cup winner's medal being placed around his neck. He's not won it, obviously, but as the medals are being presented, he's bolted onto the pitch and crying his eyes out, has thrown himself at the feet of New Zealand player and now World Cup winner, Sonny Bill Williams. Security tried to rip him away, but Sonny has stepped in. Such is his status, he's protected this wee boy and then gone a step further, taking his medal off and giving it to Charlie. Not because of his possession or his performance, but because of his posture. Here's the rub. This wee guy will forever have something that Michael Hooper won. A World Cup winner's medal. He's been exalted as Michael has been well and truly humbled. This evening we're in a section of Luke that continues where Jesus is talking primarily about his kingdom. Just last week we heard in chapter 17 verse 21 just over your page Jesus explicitly say the kingdom of God is in your midst. And so as this unseen kingdom is going out and while its people await his coming return again Jesus has shown us where to look as we wait, how to act in prayer and now he shows us how we should respond. So tonight we're going to see again God's eternal kingdom is not about performance or possession but it's about posture before God. If you want a, a strap line for where we're going it's this. God's kingdom is for those who humbly seek God's mercy and repent, placing him before everything. God's kingdom is for those who humbly seek God's mercy and repent, placing him before everything. And so we've got three quick points to help us unpack this this evening. The first and longest is this. The righteous, in God's kingdom, the righteous are humbled. Jesus continues his teaching from this morning with a parable. Starts like this, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Just like this morning, we're left in no doubt as to who this parable is aimed at. 
He clearly says it's to the self-righteous, those looking down on others. Now that certainly includes these guys, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And if that sounds familiar, it's because Jesus has been really particularly pointed in his rebuke of them throughout Luke recently. Remember, these are the men that have grumbled at Jesus' association with the poor. They've sneered at his teaching, and crucially, they have attempted to justify themselves before God in chapter 16. It's important we recognize that because it's against that backdrop that this parable is going to hit home hard. Because that's exactly the kind of Pharisee that Jesus goes on to describe in his parable. Read to me from verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus describes two men's prayers who are in absolute stark contrast to each other. And it's important that we remember how these guys would have been viewed through first century Jewish eyes. Whilst we know the Pharisees have been continually failing to understand who Jesus is, these are still kind of the religious rock stars of the day, lauded for their strenuous attempts at upholding and obeying God's law. In contrast, the tax collector would have been despised and distrusted by your average Jew, corrupt men doing the bidding of the occupying Roman Empire. And yet, how these two individuals were pray reveals loads, not about who they are in society, but about their understanding of God's kingdom and, and who this kingdom inaugurator Jesus is. So let us consider them. Let's consider their position, their posture, and their prayer. Let's start with the Pharisee. Notice how he, in our passage, stands by himself. That's his position. The contrast we'll see shortly implies that he's moved forward into the inner court of the temple, stands alone in view of many, and he adopts a posture of self-importance. Do you notice how he uses I four separate times in just two wee verses? It's a posture of superiority, and it's one that's mirrored in his prayer. Do you notice how his prayer is all about himself? I thank God I'm not like other people. He even calls out this tax collector specifically. Where does this confidence come from? Well, it's in his own self-proclaimed righteousness, in his fasting, and his tithing. Jewish law required tithing. That's just the giving of a percentage of your earnings to the Lord. But it was to be done on certain goods. You can read about that in Leviticus 27. And yet this guy tithes everything he's got. Sounds impressive. Similarly, fasting is required by law on certain days, but he's fasting twice every week. Do you see how he's going above and beyond the Old Testament law and using it as a kind of basis of his superiority? And he's not just trying to impress others. 
Do you see how his posture before God is almost demanding that God be impressed with his self-proclaimed blameless record? Do you see how his morality is man-made? In contrast, we get the tax collector. He's a world apart from this Pharisee. His position is physically far off, likely on the outer edges of the court. His posture is one of unworthiness. He doesn't even look up. He just beats his breast in contrition. And therefore, his prayer is one that begs for mercy. His comparison isn't horizontal, it's vertical. He recognizes his sin is against God and therefore recognizes his need for forgiveness from God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector asks for mercy, literally to be atoned for. It's the whole point of the temple after all. And can you see how all of this is building towards verse 14? What will be the result for two, these two men? Well, here Jesus provides the sucker punch for one and supreme delight for the other. Verse 14, I tell you this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. This tax collector goes down from the temple justified. That means to be declared right with God. As his prayer is accepted and he receives mercy. The Pharisee, however, doesn't. Position in the temple. Prayers about your past performance count for nothing. The posture of the heart, which outpours prayers of repentance, mean everything. Luke is actually repeating a common theme of his gospel that of spiritual reversal, as the self-proclaimed righteous, quote-unquote, are humbled, and the humble are exalted. We see that chapter 1, chapter 13, chapter 14. And so, humbly repent and be justified. That's the application for us. Jesus is making it clear there is mercy for the repentant. And here's the amazing thing. It's no longer bound in this sacrificial temple system in our story. This tax collector is still going to have to go back. In fact, it's all pointing towards Jesus, the narrator of the parable, the one whose own righteousness is total, for he is God. And this perfectly righteous one in the truest sense of the word was the one who humbled himself like no other. Even now in Luke, Jesus is rapidly approaching the moment where he will choose to die a horrific death on a cross. The God of heaven humbled himself to take the wrath of God's judgment for our deserved sin that we might instead receive mercy as those who come to him in repentance. Have you humbled yourself before God and repented? 
likely will fall somewhere in our attitudes of our hearts about ourselves and God between these two men. And, and we probably even move between them on a day-to-day basis, if we're honest. Let's evaluate our hearts. Are we relying on a, a kind of man-made morality in order to achieve a heavenly reality? Do we look horizontally and take pride in our given, our charitable endeavors? What others think of us? How we're seen to treat others? Do we treat God's commands like a tick box exercise? If we're honest, do we thank God we're not like other people? Well, Luke here gives us certainty that the kingdom of God is available now. But it's not for the proud or the self-righteous or even the most moral person alive. But only for those who humbly repent. You see, once our relationship to Christ is established, we've got a super firm foundation for our relationship to everything and everyone else in the model of him. If you've never done that, why don't you take one of the little Two Ways to Live booklets. We're going to have some down there after the service. It gives an overview of the gospel, but crucially gives a little example of a prayer that you could use as a guide to repent before God. Perhaps though, this evening, you're sat there and you really feel the weight of your sin. Perhaps you even just dragged yourself to church today. Whether you're a Christian or not, do you see the assurance these verses give? That just as the tax collector went home justified, in Christ we are assured of our immediate and eternal justification. Because it's not rooted in our performance, but in the actions of the perfect one, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that just as these words convict us of our need to repent, they also assure us of the certainty of our justification in Jesus. And therefore, the certainty of our entrance into God's kingdom now and forever. In God's kingdom, the righteous are humble. So humbly repent and be justified. Secondly, in God's kingdom, nobody's become somebody's. As Jesus is teaching, we're told in verse 15, people are also bringing young children, babies to him to put their hands on him. That could be for a number of reasons. It's not uncommon in Judaism culturally for elders to give blessing. But I think far more likely the reason here is throughout Jesus' ministry, People have been desperate to get their hands on him. Do you remember in chapter 6 where power just seems to be flowing out of Jesus and people are trying to touch him? So I don't think it's a surprise that, that given his ministry, people are trying to get their hands on Jesus. The disciples, though, they think this is bang out of order. And kind of like the U.S. president's bodyguards, they see themselves not for the first time as Jesus' gatekeepers. And they take it upon themselves to rebuke those bringing wee babies to him. Remember though, children in the first century are treated with a degree of irrelevance. They're not lifted up and celebrated like they are in our society. So perhaps in fairness to the disciples, they just see this as a waste of Jesus' time. Do you see Jesus' response though? Verse 16. 
let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Who the disciples seek to block, Jesus allows to enter. Every person is significant in his eyes. But I don't think that's the main point. I think Luke has really carefully sandwiched this event between the, the Pharisee of verses 9 to 14 and the rich ruler we're going to see in verses 18 to 30, where one depended on his performance, where one will have to be willing to give up his possession. Jesus shows us here that to enter the kingdom of God, we've got to have the posture of a little helpless baby. Do you notice quickly, he doesn't say the kingdom of God belongs to these children. He's not talking about the ones he's holding. He's using them as an example of those who will gain entry into the kingdom of God. I was on holiday recently on the West Coast. And in our group was a tiny wee baby, Maggie. She was three months and honestly the cutest little thing I've ever seen in my life. But really, her defining feature was her dependency. In fact... She was utterly useless. She couldn't even support her own wee head, let alone look after herself or contribute to our group in any way. Helpless. And yet, as she depended on them, her parents lovingly and sacrificially gave her everything she needed day and night. And so it is with every person who is born into the kingdom of God. John 3, verse 3 says this, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Our, our posture before God has to be one of utter dependence. We bring nothing. The Bible tells us we could do nothing to enter God's kingdom on our own. And yet Christ has offered all as we're transformed in him from nobodies to somebodies, from helpless wee babies to children of God, loved and cared for eternally by the God who made us. So, depend on Christ like a little child. Do you notice how of all the characters in our passage, men of status and wealth, this is the model we're instructed to follow. Do you see how contrasting this is with the Pharisee we've just seen? We will see in a minute how contrasting this is with the ruler. Do you see how radically different this is to what the world expects of us? Where we're told to climb, to be successful, to achieve and acquire, I hope this is a comfort to your soul that all that is asked of you is to come empty-handed and be welcomed by the Lord of all. He doesn't require anything else because he has already paid the price. Children often come with complete trust and dependence, don't they? And trust me, they know how to receive a good gift. They just take it so Come empty-handed like a child. 
Let's leave behind our dependency on the things of this world of status and wealth and come to our heavenly Father with unbounded trust, receiving the kingdom he's offering. Because the warning is actually quite stark. Those who don't adopt such a posture will never enter the kingdom. The irony is those who don't come to Jesus in dependence are actually left just floundering like we Maggie in the world, unable to help themselves. Don't let that be you this evening. Please consider how you are responding to the Lord of all. In God's kingdom, nobody's become somebody's. So depend on Christ like a little child. Lastly, in God's kingdom, gaining all is worth giving all. Jesus is then met by a rich ruler, and there's loads we're told about him. He's in some position of authority as a ruler, that's in verse 18. He's clearly a really upright man who seeks to follow God's commands. We see that in verses 19 to 21. And he's clearly got loads of cash in verse 23. He's a really impressive bloke, and he would have been considered blessed by God, by those around him. And so in the context of Jesus' teaching on his kingdom, he asks a really important question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response sees through the question and goes straight to the heart. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Jesus isn't trying to trick the man, I don't think, and neither is he rejecting the title. He's shown time and time again that he is God and therefore he's the ultimate authority on good. I think here he's, he's not going to entertain the flattery offered, but in his response, he's already starting to pick apart at what this man holds dear. This man knows he's not God. And, and therefore the logic flows, he's not ultimately good. Do you see how already Jesus is leaving this man and all of us all these years later in the position of the helpless wee baby, of the tax collector desperately needing mercy? And yet, if eternal life is going to be achieved in response to his question, acts of righteousness are required. And so he takes this man back to basics, to the Ten Commandments. You might recall from our recent series in Exodus, the first four are about how we relate to God. And the final six are therefore about how we relate to each other. So notice here how Jesus quotes five out of the six commands which are about our relationship to each other. And you can imagine the man just like nodding along. You shall not commit adultery, tick. You shall not murder, tick. Don't steal, don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, tick, 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 all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus, though, has left one out deliberately. Do not covet. He knows the man's heart. He's the God who made him after all. And he knows that coveting money is this man's idol. So he says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The man's response reveals his true heart. Such as his wealth, he becomes really sad. 
It shows he's got no idea really who this Jesus is and certainly no idea of what his kingdom is going to be like. <clears throat> Whilst Jesus is pointing him towards the unfathomable riches of heaven, he's sad about losing his comparative pennies now. This is not a command to sell everything you've got and just be skint. But rather, in the context of what's come before, this is a command to absolute allegiance to Christ above and beyond the deepest longings of our hearts. Verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? Jesus uses this really funny picture of a camel trying to fit through a needle, clearly to highlight something that is downright impossible. And yet he says, even the impossible is more likely than a rich man entering the kingdom. Clearly, the danger of being blinded by wealth is an issue here. Money will always make promises it can't cash, promises of safety and security. It hates to be given away. It wants you to keep hold of it so it has the opportunity to keep hold of you. Don't miss here though. Jesus is not saying material possession is in and of itself a bad thing. Instead, these verses raise a really important question in light of his teaching on the kingdom. Eternal life is not about what we possess, but it's about what possesses us. I wonder if we're honest. What does possess us this evening? What captures our heart and mind above everything else? What if God in his kindness took away from your life, would you be so sad that you turned away from Jesus? I think Jesus is also, though, using this as an opportunity to teach a wider point about his kingdom. Those listening would have thought that the wealthy, those apparently blessed by God, even this man, seemingly so devout to the law, he was the one that was going to get into the kingdom. If he can't, then who could? Surely with his possession, his performance, he's going to be first in line. And yet Jesus swipes the legs out of this argument, doesn't he? Jesus' point is not that no rich person can ever enter God's kingdom. It's that the impossible, humanly speaking, for anyone to get into the kingdom, just as impossible for the largest, fat Palestinian animal to get through the tiniest of openings. And yet here is the outrageously good news. Everyone, please, get your eyes on verse 27. Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Praise God that as we've learned, there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Not even the most religious or devout or impressive could achieve it. And yet, God in his mercy has made it available to us. The impossible has been made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That because he is God, he is good. 
And such is his love that hanging on that cross, he swapped our sin for his perfect righteousness. And as he is raised eternal, our eternal life is secured in that righteousness, not our poor attempts. Peter jumps in at this point. And he's quick to exclaim, the disciples have indeed left everything to follow him. They've left their money, their families. But is it all worth it? Well, Jesus responds with a resounding yes as he reiterates the call to radical allegiance is one of great reward. The best financial investment you could have made in the last 10 years is if you'd bought a somewhat controversial cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. If you bought exactly 10 years ago and sold today, you would have made a 17,141% increase. Bonkers. That is life-changing, right? Well, Jesus is saying that that is child's play compared to following Christ. The return is not 17,141%. It's incalculable. Not financially, of course. Jesus is not saying that become a Christian and you'll be rich. That's clear from these verses. But he is saying what you'll receive is worth far more. It's the justification of verse 14. A right, eternal relationship with your creator, God. It's the mercy given to the tax collector with its freedom from the consequences of our rebellion against God. It's the guarantee of entrance into his kingdom now and forever. If you're not a Christian, in our confused and chaotic world, does that not just sound class? And believe it or not, you're a Christian, the blessing doesn't end there. It includes the people sat around you. Take a look around. I'm serious. Look around. Hundreds of walking, talking examples of God's grace. People that God has given you to bless and be blessed by as we walk arm in arm until the day where we will see this Jesus face to face. Christian, that is only some of the blessing that you have already received if you have humbly come to Jesus and asked for mercy. Any cost is insignificant. Ridicule from friends and family, sacrificial use of our cash and time, prayerfully choosing holiness over sin is totally worth it. And so disciples of Jesus are willing to give all for they know that they will be blessed in this life and the life to come. If you're a Christian, never forget that Christ has already given all for you. We can never outgive him in return as we use the gifts he has given for his kingdom. In God's kingdom, gaining all is worth giving all. So be willing to give everything in service of Christ. Remember our strap line? God's kingdom is for those who humbly seek God's mercy and repent, placing him before everything. So let's not be like the kind of spiritual version of Michael Hooper. Like the Pharisee or the rich man seeking to rely on possession or performance. But let's be like the tax collector. 
like a helpless wee baby and humbly throw ourselves at the feet of Christ in repentance, rejoicing in the impossible being made possible, enjoying justification now and his kingdom forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you that you have made it possible for us to be made right with you, that there is mercy for the repentant. Lord, as we see Jesus shown to be the God of all, as we know him to be the risen one who is returning, help us to consider our position before you. Lord, in your kindness, would we all receive gracious mercy that you're offering and enjoy your kingdom for an eternity. Amen. Well, as we respond to God's word, we're going to sing a